Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. The writer of Hebrews has been laying out for these people that many of them needed encouragement. They were believers, but they needed encouragement. Some of them had heard the gospel many times, but they still were holding back. They had not entrusted their souls yet to the faithful creator because they were looking at the outside wondering what would happen if I really commit my life to Christ. In some ways, they were counting the cost, but they were also hesitating. And if they hesitated long enough, they would be lost. The message entitled this morning, Decision. Father, we thank you for your word, how powerful it is. Lord, give us understanding as your people, Lord. As a teacher this morning, I pray that I might be spirit-filled, that the message might be your message to hearts, to equip believers, to lift our heads, and Lord, to save sinners. Lord, it will give you all the glory in Jesus' name, amen. There is always this decision. And as believers, as teachers of the word, it's ours, always our opportunity to make things as simple as possible. Simple. Not easy. The decision is about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world between life and death. Between religion and relationship. There are these very, this very clear decision to follow Christ, not just ask him in your heart and then go do what you want. That is not salvation. Jesus never gave that as an invitation. His invitation was, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and what? Follow me. But it takes a decision. You are not a believer this morning. You're not a follower of Christ because your parents were. You have to make your own decision. Those that had grown up in the Judaistic religion didn't think they needed a decision. They were born better than everyone else. We live in a day and age of political parties today, right? You're probably already tired of it. I know I am. Let's vote already. The turmoil and the promises and the lies and the accusations of people that they're, they're lying to you know our way is best. And many of them turn, look back to President Reagan. And they say, oh, if we can only have President Reagan again. Well, if President Reagan was the answer, why are we in this mess now? Because political leaders, no matter how righteous or godly they are, can only bring a certain amount of change. Now, the Bible tells us, pray for our leaders. And the Bible says in the Old Testament, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, there's problems. Now, God is bringing this nation and the world to a conclusion. He is. And we're not going to stop it. Does that mean there's no hope for America? Ultimately, yes, there's no hope for America. This world is not our home. Is there temporary hope? Yes, there is. There's always hope of revival. God is able to do far beyond all that we can ask or think. If you're a citizen of the United States, I think it's your responsibility to consider the candidates and vote, but ultimately you need to understand something. 
Isaiah 57. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. So why pray? Well, because Paul instructed us. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Pray that we might be able to continue to have peace to preach the gospel. Not peace for comfort. Not peace so that you can have financial success. I think sometimes that's what that whole majority movement in the past was all about. So we can be comfortable as Christians. No, it's, it's about the gospel. But the point is, whatever political situation we find ourselves in as believers, we're called to obedience. And I want to remind you once again, because my heart needs reminded it every day, with all this turmoil going on, Jesus is not up for election. He's the king. He still rules. He's given you as a believer everything you need for faith and godliness. And he's called you to faithfulness in your time, in your place, irregardless of the circumstances. Well, these that were on the edge... The writer of Hebrews is bringing them to a decision. He wants to make it so clear, their decision. In addition to the pressures of neglect, unbelief, and tradition that they're surrounded with in their Judaism, because they haven't left yet. They've identified themselves with the Christian congregation, but they know in their heart that they haven't made that decision, maybe like some of you. But they're seeing what's happening to other believers They're afraid of persecution, criticism, ridicule, losing their job, maybe imprisonment, perhaps even martyrdom. But the writer gives this passage this very clear warning of something far more fearful than any human persecution. God's judgment. God's judgment. Every man will be judged on one of two bases. He'll either be judged by the law or by grace. By his own works or by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There are two books. One book is the Lamb's book of life. And every child of God's name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. And the Bible promises that when you get to heaven, you're going to find out what your new name is. That only you and Jesus knows. You don't know it yet. Those that have accepted Jesus Christ and those that have rejected God. That's the other book. The great white throne judgment, it says the books will be opened. And those sinners, the dead, will be judged out of that book according to their works. So if you're here this morning under the illusion that somehow, you know, you're pretty good and you compare yourselves to one another and by other people... 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says that's not wise. You could always find somebody else that maybe you smell a little better than that. You look a little better than But the problem is the standard will not be any other human. It is Jesus Christ, the God-man. It is perfection. That is the standard. And if you're judged according to your works, that that just determines the degrees of punishment that you will experience in hell. That's all that is. That's not somebody gets out. 
that somebody has an opportunity to explain because the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that at that judgment, every mouth will be stopped and all the world will be guilty. But then out of your lips, there will be the admission that Jesus Christ is Lord and you weren't a worshiper. And the saddest words in all of Scripture, I think, Jesus gave in the conclusion and the invitation of the Sermon on the Mount. Many will come to me in that day and say, oh, Lord, Lord, we knew a lot about you. We did many wonderful works in your name, and we even cast out demons. And the Lord will say to them, he said, I will say to them in that day, depart from me, worker of iniquity. I didn't know you as part of this family. I never knew you. So the writer of Hebrews wants them to bring them to that, that place that they actually understand what's going on. Because if they really understood and studied the Old Testament law, they would have understood there's no hope in the law. That is not the purpose of the law, to give you hope and security. They'd forgotten. Because they were looking back, like maybe some of you, are, if you grew up in, in a church where they had liturgy and yet there was no gospel. And you're kind of holding on to that because, well, it was, it was real and it was just wonderful. And the, the ceremony, and it seems so real. We get opportunity to see those kind of, you know, go to a church like this, see those on TV. And they have the smells and the bells and they got the holy smoke and they do all this stuff. And they got the uniforms and they got all this stuff. And when they go, oh, you know, that's, that seems so real to me. It seems so real. That's exactly what these people were holding on to. But the writer takes them back to what really happened. Somebody might think, well, you know, in the Old Testament, it must have been a beautiful thing when our forefathers got the law. No, it wasn't a beautiful thing. It was a thing that filled them with terror, real, absolute terror. And that's what the writer's bringing them back to, verse 18. And he said, for you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and to whirlwind to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, even if a beast touches the mountain, it'll be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Real terror. Exodus 20, that is quoting from here. 12b says, do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. The physical presence of a holy God so charged that mountain that if someone, an animal, or a person would have touched it, they would have dropped dead. Yeah, they're given the instruction, if they, if they break through, stone them. But it says right here, the power of God would break through and kill them. And he gave instructions, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightnings, the sound of the trumpet of the mountains. It wasn't the priest blowing the horn. These sounds were coming from Sinai. Some of you maybe have seen the film. They believe they found the real Mount Sinai. And the top of that mountain is burned black from the presence of God. And Moses got up there and God said, no, no, go back down and tell him. And Moses said, well, I already told him. No, no, you go tell him again. Do not let the priests and the people break forth to come up to the Lord or he will break forth upon them. And was so fearful, God spoke to them and gave them the Ten Commandments. 
him to all the people. And the people said, Moses, tell God not to talk to us anymore. Because we will die. You say, well, you know, I, that's just a story. You know, they were probably really ignorant people. And not, you know, they'd just they'd been slaves. So they had probably kind of a fearful attitude. Anymore. I want to tell you something. No man stands in the presence of God without God's permission. In fact, even believers without a new body will be able to withstand the presence of a holy God in heaven. That's why he's going to give us new bodies. So we can handle that. John 18. Just the name of God coming from the lips of Jesus. Remember they showed up to arrest Jesus? And Jesus wanting to protect his, his disciples said... Uh, tell me your orders again. 600 men, a cohort, a battalion showed up to arrest Jesus. Why? Because they feared his power. And Jesus said, who are you here to arrest? He knew Roman soldiers would have to only follow the orders out if they remembered their orders. They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am he. And they drew back and fell to the ground. 600 men at him just saying his name. Matthew 28, Jesus arose, and he didn't need to have the angels roll the stone away because we related that he passed through doors. The stone was rolled away so that we could see that the tomb is empty. But at that time, there was a great earthquake when he came to life. And an angel came down and rolled the stone away and just the presence of that holy angel coming from the presence of God caused those hardened, fearless Roman soldiers to collapse in a dead faint. You say, well, that doesn't scare me. Well, I will agree with you. I think until God reveres, reveals his power that people have no fear of God because the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, Paul goes and he quotes the Old Testament, and he does kind of a physical of the natural man apart from God. He looks at the natural man apart from God, and he said the poison of an asp is under their lips. Their feet run swiftly to do evil. They only think of wickedness continually. They lie every time they open their mouth. And then it ends with this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The fear of God is a gift of grace. And we sing it in that song. Amazing grace, the second verse. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me, right? It was grace that taught my heart to what? Fear. You came to Christ because God opened your eyes by his grace to the terrible condition that you were in. And so if you're here under the idea, well, I've always believed in Jesus, so I guess I'm okay. No, you haven't. You may have been grown up in a good Christian home teaching the right things, but there needs to be a time in your life when you realize that you're a lost sinner. And you need Christ. And only the power of the Holy Spirit does that. So the writer of Hebrews takes them back and he says, is this what you want to go back to? Because there's no hope in the law. You want to go back to that? Let me take you back to the real, not your imagination of what it must have been like in the good old days. But he said, let me take you back to what it really was. 
see, one day there will be fear, but it will be too late. No opportunity for remedy, no opportunity for redemption. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and that they will be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. No opportunity. Oh yeah, every day somebody's going to bow, but it'll be too late. What is the purpose of the law? John MacArthur says the law is God's great mirror. When we look into it, we see ourselves as we really are. That's God's grace. Immeasurably short of God's standard of righteousness. There's not a single commandment that we have kept perfectly or can keep perfectly. In either act or attitude, the law makes no exceptions and no allowance for less than perfect obedience. The law overwhelms us. It slays us. No sinner can endure Sinai. Every sinner who stands at the foot of Sinai is paralyzed with fear. Even Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Nobody stands before Sinai fearless. But then he compares it to Mount Zion. And Mount Zion is the grace of the gospel. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, and to the general assembly, and to the church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in, hev- enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. See, there's opportunity. You're part of something. The opportunity is Grace. To have God forgive you. To accept the ransom in the blood of Christ. He said if you go back and you, maybe you might miss a little bit of the world's tribulation. But Jesus gave it a mathematical business proposition. He said what if a man gains the whole world. You get everything you want in this life. And everybody has their own little deal of what they think that is. And you lose your own soul. Or if you came to that moment and you'd gained everything in the world, but you realized the next moment you'd be in eternity, what would you give in exchange for your soul? The person that had their eyes open would give everything. That's why those that recognize their need before a holy God bow in submission and they give their life to Christ Mount Zion is the grace of the gospel it is acceptance it is access it is eternal joy beginning at salvation we get glimpses of that eternal joy and that's why we anticipate worship together isn't it To come and be reminded that it's not about this world. We have a whole eternity. To be encouraged that even if you're going through a time of testing, this is in the end. And even if you find yourself facing death for the believer, you don't go there alone. We get glimpses of that in our small group. This week, Thursday, we left our small group. Touching the ground in high places. Why? Because we heard testimony 
of how God had worked in lives in the past to bring a supernatural to this place. And we looked at the scripture in Acts 2 and saw that all those believers were living with this everyday sense of awe. We were reminded that that's the opportunity for every believer, in spite of what's going on in the world, to live with a sense of awe. Because we serve a Savior that never leaves us nor forsakes us. We have a shepherd that leads us daily. The world doesn't have that. Mount Zion, we see there, I call it the stadium of worship in Revelation 5. You have the myriads and myriads of all those heavenly creatures shouting together with all the saints of all the ages. And he names the church. Then those that have been justified in the past, the Old Testament saints. And then there's Jesus. Then there's Jesus. I don't know what your thoughts are, heaven, but if you're a believer, what you long to see one day is Jesus. And even though you've never seen him, you still love him, 1 Peter 1.8. Oh, to see Jesus. That's what every believer lives for. You see, we, we, we do, we desire, to, I could just know exactly what God wants me to do in this situation. But then in order to find out, to have God's word in it, to have Jesus' direction, you have to spend time with him, don't you? Stop guessing. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Fellowship with him. Feed upon his word. To the believer, this is the love letter. That you go back and you read again and you read again to hear the heart of the one who loved you and gave himself for you. But that is only possible because of verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man. It's not a priest. It's not some holy person. It's the, the man Christ Jesus who died, gave himself as a ransom. He paid the price, then he came back as your attorney, as your advocate. And the Bible says that in 1 John chapter 2. He writes 1 John, John does, and he said, the thing about believers is we're sinning, but we're always confessing our sin. That's just a mark of the believer. Because we recognize sin now. We don't pass over it. We don't accommodate it. We just confess it and forsake it. The Bible says in John 1, 9, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He comes to chapter 2 and he says, little children, I write these things to you that you sin not. But when you sin, remember you have the advocate, Jesus Christ. You have the attorney that stands there and pleads for you and says, oh, that's paid for. That's paid for. But what is this sprinkling of the blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. What is that? It's Old Testament language. It is the straight gate, the entrance to Zion. It represents the pain, sufferings, humiliation, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he endured on the behalf of guilty man. Isaiah 53, 5. Isaiah 53 is a is a prophecy that looks forward to the day during the tribulation when the nation of Israel realizes they missed the Messiah and they turn to him in faith. And what will they realize? He was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are all healed. It's in the Old Testament. That's what the sprinkling of blood meant. And they sprinkle blood. You remember the very first sprinkling of blood that they experienced was Passover. And the instruction was given to the Egyptians and the Hebrews alike. But only the Hebrews obeyed. Did they understand? No, they didn't understand. The message was the death angel's coming tonight. What's that? I don't know. The death angel's coming tonight. And you will take an innocent lamb into your house. You will expect it. Make sure that it's without spot, with blemish. You will cut that lamb's throat. Catch the blood. Then you're going to cook the lamb and eat the lamb. And you're going to take the blood of the lamb and a hyssop branch. And you're going to put it over the doorpost and the lintels. You're going to sprinkle your house with the blood. That represents the innocent victim of the lamb. That you recognize that the lamb was innocent, but you're not. You are submitting to that. And when the death angel comes, he will pass over. In the, the homes of those Egyptians, the Bible says it was not a home that didn't experience the loss of the firstborn. Because they didn't put the blood over the door. You say, well, what's the big deal with trusting Jesus? It is the only way. Jesus' invitation said, listen, there's a straight, narrow gate. And you don't come with anything but your humility. Now, there's a broad way. That's what everybody else is thinking. Call 1-800 and find out their opinion. That's what everybody else thinks. But it leads to destruction. The straight gate is the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. There was other things that were sprinkling. Sprinkling purification. If, if somehow you were ceremonially unclean or you had leprosy and you couldn't be a part of the assembly and then you were healed. You went to the priest and they had saved there the ashes of a red heifer and there was a sacrifice given of an innocent vic victim and then you were sprinkled signifying that you were purified. There's the sprinkling of sanctification. Before a man entered upon the priesthood, the blood was put upon his right ear and on the big toe of his right foot, and then he was sprinkled in that blood, signifying that he was sanctified by God by the innocent victim, that he was not worthy himself. And then there was the blood of the sacrifice that was acceptance and access. When the high priest went to the most holy place once a year, it was not without blood. He sprinkled upon the Ark of the Covenant, upon the mercy seat, which is upon thereof and he was accepted he could go in there because of the blood of the innocent victim Jesus is our new covenant that blood of sprinkling represents his pains his sufferings his humiliation and his death which he endured the innocent victim on the part of guilty man and to Jesus the meteor of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Why? What is the blood of Abel? Well, when Abel was obedient and God honored his sacrifice because he brought a, an innocent victim, a blood sacrifice, as God had instructed his parents, his offering was accepted by God. 
But his brother Cain, the first man ever lived, was in rebellion. And he said, I don't have to do that. And God even warned him. He said, Cain, sin is crouching down like a lion outside the door. And he's going to devour you. You should get your heart right. God warned him. And went out and said, I don't need to do that. I don't need to be. What's a big deal? No fear of God before his eyes. And I think his brother in love went to plead with him. And his brother killed him. And later God says, hey, Cain, what have you done? Well, what do you mean? I'm not my brother's key. What do you, what do you, why should I know where he's at? And God said, his blood cries out from the ground. What did it cry for? Justice. But what did his blood speak of? His blood spoke of complete obedience to the command of God. So, well, isn't that what Jesus' blood spoke? Oh, yes, it spoke that he was an innocent victim and he was completely obedient to the Father's commands, but there was no hope in the blood of Abel. But in the blood of Jesus, there is hope. There is redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The cross has a deeper, gladder gospel for fallen man than that of a perfect example to follow. That's why Jesus' blood, which is the pathway, the gateway to salvation, speaks of better things. Verses 25 through 28. The unshakable kingdom. See to it that you not, do not refuse him who is speaking. He said, well, his blood is speaking. That's right. Jesus is one and the same as the sprinkled blood, the blood of the covenant. There is no Savior without the sacrifice of the cross. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. The psalmist, the psalmist writes, the wicked say, oh, God doesn't see me. I can eat up the righteous like a man eats bread. God doesn't see me. I can do what I want. No, God sees. In fact, there were special laws that said, if you don't have a witness to a capital crime, you don't go ahead and just find somebody to execute just so you can say you executed somebody. God's not going to buy that. You're going to have to just let that person go. But understand this. They're not getting away with it. If O.J. Simpson did kill his wife, he's not getting away with it. Why? And that's what God said. One day, I'll deal with him personally. God will deal with you. And yet, here's the good news. Not by your own works, but simply by the decision to entrust God with your soul. You can become a part of an unshakable, unshakable kingdom. We have all the warnings from politicians today. Why, if you don't choose this president, it'll upset the balance of the Supreme Court and we won't even know what our Constitution means anymore. That's possible. If you don't put this guy in and this person gets in, why, they'll take all your money. We're already bankrupt. We need somebody to save us. And yet even those that claim Christ never say, listen, folks, we don't need a better president. We need revival. The problem is not bad spending or bad economic policy. The problem is a sinful nation. 
that has forgotten God, that have put God out of their life. And the Bible prophesies, all the wicked will be turned into hell, and the nations that forget God. See, that's a special judgment. There are some nations that God was never important to them. Jesus was never important. But America is not one of them. America was founded upon the principles of God's word. And the Bible says one day all these things are going to pass away. This is not an eternal nation. When we sing that song and we sing about he died for his favorite nation, he's not talking about America. I hope you didn't confuse that. We're singing some kind of British Israelism about America that, oh, yeah, we're the, God got rid of Israel and now he's chosen America. No, no, no. America's going to go into ruin one day. It's going to pass away. We don't pray for that. We hope for its preservation that America turn back to God. But in the meantime, we understand we're citizens of heaven as his children. And we're a part of something that can't be shaken. Verse 26. In those days in the Old Testament, God's voice shook the earth. He's shaken the earth many times. When Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. There was an earthquake. And because the sacrifice was accepted, the Bible says there was an earthquake. The rocks were split open. Graves were open, and some of the righteous dead came out of the graves alive. And the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom. All of a sudden, there was access because Jesus' blood was accepted. There's going to be another great earthquake. There's earthquakes all the time. Every time there's an earthquake, you should remind as a believer, God still lives. And Isaiah said that when just the voice of God spoke in the temple in heaven that he made. The, temp, the pillars of the temple moved. Just his voice. His voice shook the earth. Yet once more he said, I will shake not only earth, but also the heavens. This expression once more comes from Haggai. Chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable servant with reverence and awe. To those that belong to God, it's not a slavish, quivering fear. It's an awe. I believe many of you in this church have that. I know I have that. What is that? That's an expectation and anticipation that God blesses his word and he takes care of his people. And that he leads us day by day by day. So the focus of the elders of this church is not to come up with really good ideas of how we can honor God. Our focus is, where is God working? And we try to get there. What is God doing? Where is he going? We're going to follow him. The question is not, do we have enough money? Because our father is rich. It's simply obedience. And the knowledge that our God never fails. He never forgets. He will always remember. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. 
You may be coming to the time of death. And even John the Baptist, here he was, the one that prepared the way for Jesus. In Matthew 11, he's starting to have doubts. Why? Because he's in prison. And if, if the Messiah is there and he's going to take over, he's going to conquer and get rid of the Romans and purify the corrupt priesthood, he's going to do that. Why am I in jail? About to lose my head. And Jesus reminds him. He said, you go back and tell John. The deaf can hear, the blind can see, the lame can walk. And then he turns to the people around him. What would you go out to see anyway? What would you go out to see? This is a serious decision. This is a serious decision. And he said, from the time of John till now, the kingdom of God experiences violence. And then he says, and the violent take it by force. What does that mean? John Bunyan explained it so powerfully in his illustration in Pilgrim's Progress. You see, there's a decision that comes when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to your trouble. And when you really see what God offers, the unshakable, powerful, acceptable kingdom that you can be accepted in by the blood of Christ, not by your own works. And you see that everything else is going to be shaken and going to pass away. That's God that shows you that. Then like that young man, he saw everything that was there. And John Bunyan paid such a picture of this verse. And there's the picture of the saints in glory and they're, they're dressed in their beautiful, righteous garments that have been dressed by their Lord, the King. And they're walking on the tops of the mountains. And Pilgrim says, I want to go in there. I want to go there. And the pastor says to him, wait, you haven't seen the whole story. You need to understand what this is going to cost you. And outside, outside there were all kinds of fierce armed men preventing it looked like anybody from coming in. And so there were many there not willing. They saw what it was going to cost and they, they stood back and they didn't want to put their name down. But one young man strode up to the man sitting at the table. He was dressed in his armor. He had his sword and he said, put my name down. Put my name down. And then he rushed to the fray. And John Bunyan said, after giving and receiving many wounds, he passed through the gates as those inside sang, come in, come in, eternal glory thou shalt win. Salvation cost Jesus everything. And he calls you to that life. He offers salvation full and free. And he says, I'll give you everything you need to be successful. Faithful is he that calls will also bring it to pass. Not you, him. 1 John 1.12 says, as many as received him. Because maybe you're outside and you're saying, I see believers, they're a different kind of cat. That's right. They're different because they're spirit-filled now. They have the Holy Spirit. The life is not their own. It's not them making a new change in their life. That's being infused by the life of Christ. As many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. 
For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. No matter what trials you will pass through as a believer, what you remember is the joy. That's what you remember, is the incredible, unexplainable joy that Jesus walked with you. You were never by yourself. So the question comes down to this as we celebrate communion, which is the same symbol as the sprinkled blood. It is the symbol of the innocent victim, the life of Christ that was laid down for us, and we remember it. And and the Bible instructs you need to remember that often. Have you been sprinkled? Revelation 1, 5. And the King James says it like this. I love this. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, And washed us from our sins in his own blood. What a picture. What a savior. Father, we thank you as we come to the table. That you would love us so much. That you would send your only begotten son to be the innocent victim. For your enemies. And when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You sent the Savior to take our place. Oh, Lord, I pray that those that are fearful of reaching out to take your hand because of what it might cost you, they'd see for the first time all they're giving away is filthy rags. They're giving up the temporal for an eternal, unshakable kingdom. Oh, Lord, give them grace. Draw them to yourself. And, Lord, give us courage, Lord, as your children. Lift our heads that we might walk forward to the battle. Hearing the songs of the saints as they sing from eternity. Come in, come in, eternal glory thou shalt win. And we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name.